We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Most Tuesdays are just Tuesdays. Except at Buffalo Wild Wings, where Tuesdays are Wing Tuesdays. But now, even Wing Tuesdays aren't just Wing Tuesdays, because Wing Tuesdays are half-price Wing Tuesdays, which means your boring Tuesday that became Wing Tuesday now costs you half as much. In case you're confused, we have half-price Wing Tuesdays. We do it for you. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings. Beer. Sports. Prices and participation vary. See participating locations for details. Void or prohibited. Welcome to the Rotowire NBA podcast. It is Tuesday, December 6th. Nick Whalen here with DJ Trainer. We have a guest on today's podcast. He is Chris Fedor of Cleveland.com. Chris was generous enough to join us for about an hour this afternoon. Of course, we talked Cavaliers. We talked the Richard Jefferson, Channing Fry bromance, Mark Price, Bobbleheads, the Browns, equipment managers named Cobra, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get to Chris. All right, so we are here with Chris Fedor, Cleveland.com. He's a host at 92.3 The Fan, a CBS affiliate in Cleveland. You can follow Chris on Twitter, at Chris Fedor. Uh, Chris, first of all, thanks for taking the time to join us. You got it, guys. No problem. Thanks for having me. 
All right, so we always start uh, with all of our guests with just some basic background info. So I'll start. Are you from the Cleveland area or the, the greater Northeast Ohio area? Yeah, so I was born and raised in this area. Been here 33 years of my life. Um, even went to school, college, locally. I went to Baldwin-Wallace, which is in Berea, about 20, 25 minutes away from downtown Cleveland. So I've never leave, never wanted to leave, never wanted to go anywhere other than Cleveland. And uh, fortunately, I've been lucky to, to have opportunities to get some jobs here. So how long have you been covering the Cavaliers or Cleveland sports? All right, so I started in radio when I was a junior in college at Baldwin Wallace. So that was way back in like 2004. So I've been in uh, sports media, either broadcasting or journalism for the last, I'd say, 11 years, maybe 10 years. Um, And I got to start doing radio, obviously. Um, And I did that for about seven and a half years full time or so before I started covering the Cavs. But while I was doing radio, I was covering Cavs practices, Cavs games, things along those lines. But but full-time on the Cavs beat happened when LeBron came back in 2014. So I'm assuming you uh, grew up a Cleveland sports fan, of course, mm-hmm. but I've often heard here from a lot of beat writers that the beat just kind of beats the fandom out <laughs> of you. Has that been the case for you so far? Or you still consider yourself a Cleveland sports fan? So I still consider myself a Cleveland sports fan, but but I feel like because I cover the Cavs on a daily basis, I've been programmed to watch the NBA in a different kind of way, if that makes sense, and watch the Cavs in a different kind of way. Um, and to give you a little bit more background, like my dad was a diehard Cleveland sports fan. We went to Ohio State games together. We went to Browns games together. We went to Cavs games together, the NBA All-Star game when it was here in Cleveland in 1997. Indians. So all that stuff is in my blood. And my fiance is the same kind of way. She's a diehard Cleveland sports fan because she was born and raised here too. So during the NBA finals, all of the people around me were just so into it. The rally that the Cavs were making, they were down 3-1 at one point and they were talking to me about the team, but they were talking to me from the perspective of a fan and they were just enjoying what was going on. And they were celebrating every single time the Cavs won one of those games after being down 3-1. And my fiance kept asking me, why aren't you more excited about this? Why don't you show more emotion? And I say, babe, you know, it's been programmed that I have to act a specific way when I'm at games, watching games, covering games. So when it comes to the Cavs, I feel like I've been able to distance myself because I have to be that professional. When it comes to the Browns and the Indians, I don't cover them full time. I don't cover them the way that I cover the NBA. So when the Indians were going through the World Series, I was jumping up and down. I was pacing back (laughs) and forth. I was doing all the things that a normal Cleveland sports fan would do when the Indians were playing. I don't do that for Cavs, though, because I don't feel it's right to do that sort of thing. No, I think I think most journalists would agree with you on that. But like you said, you do cover the Indians and the Browns uh, to a lesser degree than the Cavs. Uh, do you enjoy covering those two teams just as much, or is does uh, do the Cavaliers in basketball kind of hold a special place for you? Yeah, Cavs in basketball hold a special place for me. Um, it was obviously something that that I fell into. It wasn't my desire. I didn't go into college saying I want to become um, a beat reporter, follow one team specifically. I, I went to college. I majored in broadcast, and 
I said, I want to either do play-by-play or I want to have my own sports talk radio show. And I did for a long, long time, and it was awesome, and I enjoyed it. And I still enjoy hosting part-time on the weekends at 92.3 The Fan. Um, But I fell into this Cavs gig, and I feel like um, I've embraced it, and I've enjoyed it a lot more than I even thought I was, uh, despite the fact that, that I don't have the same writing background as a number of the other people that are in the business. Um, and I think being around the team gives me a better appreciation for these guys, gives me a better appreciation for the NBA and the people that are in the NBA. Um, so, so it has become something that, that I enjoy more than I even thought I would. And now it has been a special place. Um, and I do enjoy it more than covering the Browns and watching the Browns, especially, and even Wait, covering you don't the say. Indians. <laughs> yeah, co- I mean, covering the NBA champion versus the winless Browns. Hey, I, I don't consider it winless. I feel like they've won every <laughs> single game so far this year because they're getting closer and closer to that number one pick. So <laughs> no, that, to that's, me, that's the ultimate victory. No, that's true. We'll we'll talk more briefly, I guess, uh, about the Browns later in the pot. But I'm a full disclosure. I'm a Jaguars fan uh, and have Oof. been for for quite some time. So I, I'm right there with you. It's been not quite as bad, but just about. Yeah, I don't think anything's quite as bad no. as being a Browns fan <laughs> since 1999. <laughs> Uh, Chris, one more background question before we get into actually talking about the Cavaliers. Do you travel with the team? Yes, I do. Um, it's, it's kind of one of those situations where a budget is, is one way in the business. So when it's early on in the regular season, I don't travel as much as I'm going to when it comes down to March, April, May, but I just got back from Milwaukee when the Cavs were there. I traveled to Washington DC for the White House trip. So there are certain games that, that they pick out, even though it's early on in the schedule, that they deem more important, and I'll make those. But in 2017, when it gets closer to the postseason, I'll be traveling on a daily basis. And your personal favorite destination is? Man, so, like, I'm I'm weird in that, like, I love Cleveland and everything about Cleveland, so Milwaukee has always had a special place to me as well, and I know that I'm in the minority on that one, and people wouldn't say Milwaukee. But Milwaukee reminds me so much of Cleveland, and I love Cleveland. I love the small-town feel of it. I love the community. I love the lake. I don't mind the cold weather because I grew up in it. So I do love Milwaukee because it's very much like Cleveland. But I'll tell you what, I went to Washington, D.C. for the first time this year in mid-November, and I, I don't know that it's it's going to be one that's going to be topped. Now, I got to go to the White House, so that plays into it, but just <laughs> the entire community and seeing all the history there, it was almost overwhelming to me. So I really, really enjoyed my time in Washington, D.C. You walk everywhere, basically. Everything's within reach that you would want to go to, so I really enjoyed my time there. No, and they had a Browns backers bar, so we watched the Browns game there, too, so that was nice. <laughs> Yeah, always a nice perk. Uh, we're actually based in Madison, Wisconsin, so we, we like the oh, answer okay. of Milwaukee. So yeah, I mean, just about an hour away. Sounds like um, you're bettering up the host here, Chris. Yeah, yeah, you did your research. <laughs> I like to see that. Hey, um, I was talking to Matthew Delavadova, though, when I went to travel to Milwaukee, and he said the same thing. I said, does Cleveland remind you at all of Milwaukee and vice versa? And he said, yes, absolutely. It was the first thing huh. that I said to my fiance when we got here, and it's <laughs> one of the reasons why he likes Milwaukee. So I'm not the only one that thinks Cleveland is very similar to Milwaukee. All right, so let's get into Cavaliers talk. Um, you know, as someone who covered Cleveland sports, well, while LeBron was in Miami, 
how would you describe the overall difference in the Cavaliers organization from that time, you know, being about 2010 to 2014 uh, until now? And, you know, I guess you can kind of take as broad or as narrow of an approach uh, yeah. to this one as you'd like. I mean, I'm sure things are, are probably in some ways night and day, uh, you know, to how they were while LeBron was was in South Beach. Yeah, guys, I would say it's night and day. And and the thing that stands out to me, obviously, when LeBron went to Miami, the Cavs had to devise a new kind of plan. And they even came out and told everybody they weren't trying to win. So the obvious answer is that in 2010 to 2014, their whole goal was to bottom out, be bad, get as many assets as possible. I think they called it asset accumulation stage that they were in, which is a nice way, I think, of saying tanking and trying to get the first overall pick as much as possible. Um, and now the entire goal for this team, it's it's changed to the point where even if they get to the playoffs, even if they win the Eastern Conference and get to the NBA Finals, it's not going to be a success. It's It's all about a championship. And I was talking to James Jones about this the other day before – um, a game in the home locker room, and he said there's a difference between playing meaningful basketball in the regular season and getting to the playoffs. There's a difference between that and playing championship basketball. And I, and I guess when I was covering the Cavs when LeBron left, I don't know if I fully understood what that meant. I don't know if fans fully understood what that meant, but I think you're seeing the kind of difference now that LeBron's back, and now that the expectations are so high for the team. So that's the obvious answer. And I would say that the other answer is that there's a plan in place and there's an identity in place of of who this team is, how they're going to try and win games, and the kinds of players that they're going to try to acquire. Because for the four years when LeBron was in Miami, it didn't seem like there was much of a plan, or maybe there was, and they just didn't really care about fit. They wanted to acquire as much talent as possible and see if if that could get them to the stage that they ultimately wanted to get to. Now when it comes to the Cavs, now that you have a core in place, so much of what they do, so many of the decisions that they make are driven by fit. How do you fit alongside the big three? How do you fit alongside LeBron? How do you fit alongside Kyrie? Um, And that's part of the reason why they've um, drafted a guy like Kay Felder. That's part of the reason why they identified J.R. Smith, Iman Shumpert, when they made trades, Timofey Mozgov before that. So much of it was about fit and finding those ancillary pieces to go with the core. You know, from an outsider's perspective, it, it really seemed like Cleveland immediately re-embraced LeBron when he decided to come back in mm-hmm. 2014. Obviously, you had a first-hand perspective of that. Was that actually the case, or was there a little bit of a buffer period before that happened? I think you're always going to have some fans, whether it's the majority, minority, um, however you want to quantify it, you're going to have some that don't fall in line, and they're always going to hold it against LeBron, what he did, and how he went about doing it. Um, At the same time, I would say you guys are accurate in the fact that the majority of the fans, to me, um, embraced LeBron in a way that I thought was quicker than I anticipated. I think there were two reasons for it. Number one, how he went about doing it. The letter, the heartfelt letter that um, he had through SI.com, Lee Jenkins, great writer, Um, Just the way that he announced his return to Cleveland and he talked about 
um, his roots, and he talked about the blood, sweat, and tears, and he talked about how much it meant to him to come back to Cleveland, deliver a championship to the city, erase the smudge on his resume. All of those things resonated with Clevelanders and Cavs fans. Um, and, and I think the other thing was that they understood just how bad things were for four years when LeBron wasn't here and watching him win championships down in Miami and seeing the joy on his face and seeing how the community of Miami embraced LeBron, uh, watching him do all that while the Cavs were building these 26-game losing streaks, firing coaches constantly, playing for the lottery, all of that stuff combined into one was very, very difficult for Cleveland fans to watch. So when he came back, there was a new sense of hope. There was a new sense of belief that, okay, now we can get to where LeBron was in Miami and we can get to where LeBron was in Miami quickly because of the pieces that are going to want to come here in Cleveland. And I think Cavs fans were beaten down so much for four years that any kind of hope was something that they were obviously going to latch on to quickly. So how he went about it and mentioning all the stuff, the heartfelt way that he decided to come back to Cleveland, um, that allowed people to embrace him. And just the fact that, okay, now we go from the very bottom of the NBA being a punchline in the NBA to competing for championships. Um, Both of those things played into how he was embraced. So you mentioned the two titles for LeBron in Miami. Um, you know, obviously we know how he was received, especially those first couple times. You know, coming back to Cleveland, it, it, and it reminded me a lot of kind of Durant. Um, you know, he hasn't been back to OKC, but you know, while he was playing against the Thunder uh, a few mm-hmm. weeks ago, you know, he's he's chatting it up with the bench. Didn't like, like it looked like it was all that cordial. Uh, LeBron had kind of gone full villain mode, I guess, uh, in 2011 tw- or 2010, 2011. Were you happy to see him win those two titles in Miami? Was was the city rooting for him, rooting against him in that Dallas series? No, the is, city is this was a not. Question? I, I feel like this might be a dumb question. <laughs> the city was not rooting for him. In fact, uh, the city dubbed themselves the Dallas Mavaliers for one year. <laughs> That's how much they embraced the oh, Dallas God. Mavaliers. Yeah. Yes, uh, that was something where that was made on T-shirts here in this Jeez. town, where you could buy those T-shirts. <laughs> So we had the period of being the Dallas Mavaliers because the Cavs had nothing else going for them. And then the year after that, it became the Oklahoma City Thunder. Wow. So whatever fans could do to latch on and root against LeBron James, they were willing to do it. The first time that he came back in 2010 as a member of the Heat, there were synchronized chants. They like handed out flyers where, okay, at the six-minute mark of the first quarter, you're going to shout this at LeBron. Maybe it was Akron hates you, or maybe it was something about being a baby. And then at the end of the first quarter, you're going to chant this. So they had all of that, so much venom towards LeBron, and that carried over um, for his entire time in Miami where fans started rooting on the Dallas Mavericks like they were their own, or the Oklahoma City Thunder like they were their own, like... It was the Cavs as people's favorite team, and whoever was playing against LeBron and the Heat became the second favorite team of fans in Cleveland because they just did not want to see him be successful down in Miami. They wanted him to regret his decision, and they wanted it to be a case where he was going to be laughed at because he couldn't win a title, even with Dwayne Wade and, Le- and Chris Bosh down there in Miami. Now, it didn't turn out that way for Cleveland fans, of course. Um, And I think the end result of him going to Miami, 
and LeBron called it his college years, his four years in college in Miami, that turned out to probably be the best thing ever for the Cavs because he grew so much. He learned how to be a champion. Um, he developed championship habits. And a lot of the stuff that they did in Miami from a culture standpoint, he brought back to him with the Cavs. And now it's a family environment. Now it's about the process. He even talks like he's still in Miami. And and I just don't think if, if he would have stayed in Cleveland through that whole time and he never would have went to Miami, I don't know that he ever would have been a champion. I don't know if he ever would have learned how to be a champion. And he learned that from Dwayne Wade, Pat Riley, Eric Spolstra, and all those guys that he was with in Miami. And now, because he learned all those things and brought those back to Cleveland, you can see it throughout the entire organization. Um, and they have benefited greatly from that, especially rallying from 3-1 down in the NBA Finals. So I'm still still kind of hung up on this Dallas Mavaliers and Man, Google Oklahoma shirts. City. You can like, probably still get one on eBay. I'm, I'm, I'm literally doing that as we speak, and I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of uh, I'm disappointed to find that it looks like it's going to be a harder task than I thought. But did they have a nickname or a pun for the Spurs? Uh, they did not, and I think a tough part one. of that was because it would have been way too challenging. True. Whereas the Dallas Mavaliers was really easy, and then Oklahoma City <laughs> yeah, was Thunder was really, really easy. Like, it was convenient. Yeah, like thank God they weren't playing the Jazz or something. Um, <laughs> well, and I mean Cleveland had already lost a title to San Antonio. What right four or five years previous? I guess that maybe that's uh, part of it as well. But uh, you know, you mentioned that you know once LeBron came back, things kind of changed for you in terms of your coverage of the Cavaliers. Obviously, their prominence skyrocketed. Uh, probably I would assume immediately past the Browns and past the Indians in Cleveland, you know, with the Cavs becoming, you know, the marquee team at the time uh, in the NBA, right alongside the Warriors, you know, cleveland.com bulked up its staff, uh, mm-hmm. you know, bringing on guys like, you know, like Chris Haynes coming over from Portland. Uh, now we're kind of seeing something similar in, in the Bay area with guys from Oklahoma, basically following Kevin Durant. Uh, to the West Coast. I mean, how much did your job individually kind of change overnight when LeBron announced that decision? Oh, big time. I think um, I think covering the Cavs for Cleveland.com went from um, a local responsibility to a national um, coverage team, just like that, snap of a finger, because that's what fans wanted, and that's the kind of eyeballs that were going to be on the team. And you know, there are people from China covering the Cavs on a daily basis right now. There are people from Europe that came in to cover the Cavs a few years ago when David Black came. Um, so, so it just became uh, a local story into a national story in in one day, basically. And and that's what readers demanded from you, and, and your coverage had to meet that. Um, and and at some point, you just got to a point where it was like. You know, everything they do, everything they say, everything they tweet, every little thing that you wouldn't think would be a story turned into a story because people craved so much Cavs information and they wanted to know more about LeBron and they wanted to be close to the team. Um, and, and to me, that that was the biggest change. Uh, before that, you know, somebody could have tweeted something and, and it just wouldn't have mattered or somebody could have said something controversial in a press conference, and it just didn't matter that much. It didn't resonate because the Cavs were one of the worst teams in the NBA. But when the spotlight started shining down on Cleveland and shining down on LeBron and the Cavs in particular, uh, your coverage had to match that, and you had to make sure 
And you still, to this day, have to make sure that you're on top of everything. And even something as small as a tweet or an Instagram or a bet between LeBron James and Dwayne Wade about wearing a Chicago Cubs uniform, that becomes one of the biggest stories in the NBA. Not just one of the biggest stories in Cleveland surpassing the Browns and the Indians, but one of the biggest stories in the entire NBA, and some would say in the, in, in, in the world. All right, Chris, let's switch gears here and talk about this Cleveland Cavaliers that is constructed today, this season. Of course, they recently dropped three in a row to the Bucks, Clippers, and Bulls before winning in Toronto last night after such a hot start. What was the issue over the past week? And, you know, the, the hill, obviously, I don't expect you to know this, the hill that I've decided to die on is that their biggest weakness this regular season is their own boredom. You know, they've been through it so many times and they came out on top last year. What is actually going to motivate them to get through all 82 games this season? Yeah, I think it's a challenge. I, I really do. Because the other thing that makes it a challenge is the fact that the Eastern Conference is not set up like the Western Conference. And I think the Cavs deep down feel, and fans deep down feel like, even if the Cavs didn't get the number one seed in the East, they would still have a clear path to the finals. And, and maybe it's not the same feeling around the Warriors because there are still landmines out there out West, like San Antonio, like the Los Angeles Clippers. But, but when it comes to the Cavs in the Eastern Conference, there's a feeling because they weren't at their best during the regular season last year, and they still found a way to get to the NBA Finals and win a championship, that the regular season has taken a back seat, guys. And I think sometimes the players have a hard time motivating themselves as well. They've used the same thing. They've said the same thing, that um, they do have to find a way to get past the championship hangover. And they do have to find a way to come up with things to motivate themselves because they do get bored. Ty Lu said the other day that he tries to trick his team into thinking some of these regular season games are going to matter or are going to be significant. So he's trying to use every method possible to try and keep his team sharp, try and keep them engaged, and try and keep them from being bored. But the truth of it is, they're champions now. LeBron has been a champion a number of times, three times now in his career, and he understands when it's time to quote-unquote flip the switch. And it's not about December for them. It's not about November. It's about trying to be at their best, just like they were last year, going into the postseason. Now, a lot of the stuff that happened last year in the regular season led them to, to where they are right now and led to them being champions. The drama, um, the coaching change, the struggles at the beginning of the year, taking accountability, I don't think the Cavs would have won the championship and rallied from 3-1 down against the Warriors if that stuff in the regular season didn't happen. So I don't want to say that the regular season is meaningless, but, but I do think it's fair to say that they don't view the regular season, and fans here in Cleveland don't view the regular season the way that they probably would have in the past because of what happened last year and because they were still able to win the NBA championship despite not having a great regular season. I mean, you, you mentioned that there's maybe that belief that they don't have to be the one seed and it, you know, it ultimately probably doesn't matter for them just because mm -hmm. of the talent level on this team. I mean, that, I think that's true. I mean, you saw even if you go back to LeBron's Miami teams, I want to say they were only the one seed maybe once or twice. I think Indiana got it a couple times and you know, it, it played out, you know, Indiana was kind of Miami's version of what Toronto is to this Cleveland team in a lot of ways, like a team that mm -hmm. can push them to six games, maybe seven sure. games, but 
it's hard to really take them, you know, all that seriously. You know, prior to this little three game losing streak, had there been any talk of, you know, let's see how many games we can win? You know, can we can we push for high sixties, low seventies? Um, or or is this team, you know, one that's really always been focused on the playoffs from the start? So the Cavs' primary goal, guys, is to get healthy going into the playoffs. That's what they're looking for. Um, and they're going to monitor minutes accordingly. They're going to hold guys out um, when they're injured and take a cautious approach. And Ty Lu and the training staff has this thing called the red zone. And I asked them to quantify it for me a few different times. And nobody will. But they have this zone that they're looking at where if a guy plays too many minutes or his body plays through a lot of pain or, or whatever the case may be, um, and he gets into the red zone, or he gets close to the red zone, the Cavs are just going to rest that guy, or they're going to hold him out for however long it's going to take so that he's right, or he's at his best, or he's peaking going into the postseason. So the number one goal stated by Ty Lu is to be healthy going into the postseason. At the same time, I can tell you that Ty wants the number one seed. He does, and the Cavs do. They don't believe that they need it, and they don't need it, probably, not to win the Eastern Conference, but they want it. They want it for the fans, and they want it because they only lost one game in the postseason at home last year, and that was uh, game four in the NBA Finals against Golden State. So I think they they know that they're much better at home than they are on the road, and they know the kind of impact that the crowd can have. They saw it firsthand during last year's playoff run, and they would like to get the number one seed not just in the Eastern Conference, they would like to get the number one seed overall, if possible, to have a Game 7 in the NBA Finals potentially back in Cleveland because they think that that would matter. Um, again, it's it's not their number one goal. Their number one goal is being healthy going into the postseason, and they're not going to sacrifice that, not for anything, not for the number one seed overall. But if they could be healthy going into the postseason and get the number one seed overall, that's something that they would like to have happen. So Chris, the Cavs have said all the right things of the last two plus years, but in your heart of hearts, do they really respect their other contending quote unquote contending teams in the East? I don't think they do. And I don't think there's any reason to, because let's say it's Atlanta, right? Atlanta is one of the teams from the Eastern conference that has beaten the Cavs here in the regular season. They couldn't get the Cavs a few years ago in the postseason when things set up for them to take advantage of that. When the Cavs were dealing with injuries, Kyrie was less than 100%. Kevin Love was not around. That was two years ago. And Atlanta was the number one seed in the East at that point, and they had a home court advantage. And they got swept. They still couldn't get past LeBron and the Cavs, a wounded lesser LeBron and the Cavs. And then if you go back to last year, there were talk like, okay, Atlanta's a different team this year. Um, they learned a lot in, in, in the postseason series against the Cavs the year before. And then what happens? They get swept again. And Boston, once in the postseason, has already been swept by the Cavs. So really the only team that, that has shown in the past that they can win games in the postseason against the Cavs, Chicago, before they broke up their core, now they're a different-looking team, and then, of course, Toronto last year. And the Cavs actually pointed to Toronto last year and said we didn't necessarily respect them the way that we needed to 
and we went on the road in Toronto in two playoff games, and we lost because we didn't respect the opponent, because we didn't respect the game. Now, Toronto played well, and you have to give them credit for that, but, but that's how the Cavs viewed that series last year against Toronto. It wasn't necessarily what Toronto did to them, it's what the Cavs did not do in the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, so, so I just don't think there's that team out there that has earned that kind of respect from the Cavs or has earned um, a level of respect where the fans have to feel like, uh-oh, there's going to be something here. Look, Toronto's a good team. Boston's a good team. Atlanta's a good team. Chicago's a different team. And they've got now playoff experience and they've got a champion in Dwayne Wade. But, but I would say, even though the Cavs are saying all the right things, respect is earned. And, and the only team to this point that has earned any modicum of respect from the Cavs is Toronto because they won two games last year in the conference finals. But even the Cavs view that as that was more about what they didn't do than what Toronto did. So to you, which team right now is the biggest threat to the Cavaliers? And, you know, again, maybe it would take an injury or two to Cleveland for that threat to, to materialize into anything real. But, you know, who is the biggest challenger right now if there is one to the Cavaliers? Well, in the East, I don't know that there is one, and, and that doesn't mean that I think that the Cavs are the perfect team here. They've got some flaws, and I think um, some of them were, were shown in the three-game losing streak against mm-hmm. Milwaukee, L.A., and Chicago. Look, the Cavs, when they first put the team together in 2014 and LeBron came back, the buzzword around the organization, people inside the organization were saying it, and, and fans were saying it. They kept saying rim protector. We need a rim protector, rim protector, rim protector, rim protector, because there's so much dribble penetration nowadays in the NBA, and there's so much high pick and roll that we have to have somebody at the rim, like Chris Bosh when he was there with the Miami Heat, and they won two titles, like Tim Duncan when he was there in San Antonio, they won titles, like Kevin Garnett when he was in Boston, they won titles, like Tyson Chandler when he was in Dallas, and they won the championship against Miami. We need one of those kinds of guys. It was imperative for the Cavs to go out and find one of those guys. And they did. They brought in Timofey Mozgov. But, but Timo's not here anymore. And I find it hard to believe that something that was so important to this team two years ago, and, and for the entire time that Timo was here, that it's just not important to them anymore. I don't believe that. And Mozgov left, and they didn't replace him. And now Tristan Thompson's being asked to do some things, some things that he's capable of, and other things that he's just not. And physical, imposing teams have given the Cavs a problem this year. Dwight Howard owned Tristan Thompson in the regular season meeting. DeAndre Jordan owned Tristan Thompson recently. Greg Monroe and the Milwaukee Bucks and all those guys inside scored 68 points in the paint against the Cavs. Taj Gibson's and the Chicago Bulls scored 78 points in the paint against the Cavs. And, and it comes down to part of it is the Cavs don't have a rim protector. They don't have that last line of defense. It's Tristan Thompson and Kevin Love. And Tristan's a good defender in a lot of ways. He's just not tough and he's not physical. And he can be out-muscled by some of these other guys. And, and Kyrie's not the greatest on-the-ball defender. He's not going to stop dribble penetration. So when you combine that with the loss of a rim protector, I think it highlights that issue even more. On top of that, the Cavs don't have a backup point guard. So when they go to their second unit, their bench is the 27th highest scoring bench in the NBA. Now, they don't ask a lot of that second unit, 
because they have Kevin Love, they have LeBron, they have Kyrie, they can pick up the scoring slack, and they need a little bit from JR here, a little bit from Iman Shumper, a little bit from Channing Fry. So the Cavs don't ask a ton from their second unit, but I think they're even surprised at the lack of production and the lack of trust that Ty has in that second unit so far this year. I mean, the other night against Chicago, they were playing the second game of back-to-back, and Ty could only play three guys off his bench because there were only three guys that he really trusted. So the fact that they don't have Matthew Dellavedova and someone to run the offense for the second unit, it's caused them to experiment with lineups, change their rotations, and they're still searching at this point for somebody to run that second unit or for some kind of consistent production or consistent minutes from that second unit. And that might be a problem, especially if you get into a seven-game series against Golden State or San Antonio or Los Angeles or another team that could come out of the Western Conference. So there are some issues here with the Cavs, but I don't think any of those issues are going to prevent them from coming out of the Eastern Conference because the ultimate trump card is um, every single time they take the court against any team from the East, chances are they're going to have If not the three best players on the court that given night, they're definitely going to have the two best players on the court that given night. And there's just no team that has that kind of offensive firepower in the East to keep up with the Cavs. And there are too many teams that have a hard time defending the Cavs in the half court because of the spacing, because of the amount of drivers, and because of the amount of offensive options that they usually have when they're clicking. It just gives opposing defenses way too difficult of a time. Ask Atlanta about it, ask Toronto about it, ask anybody about it. Um, So I just don't see any team from the Eastern Conference that has the formula to switch one through five while at the same time have enough offensive firepower to hang with the Cavs in a seven-game series. You have to beat them four times in seven tries. I just don't think anyone's capable of doing it. Yeah, I'd say that's pretty fair all around, although I hope DeAndre Liggins and, and Birdman aren't listening to this pod. Um, <laughs> they usually do. They, yeah, they usually Credit do. Credit to so. Liggins. Credit to Liggins. He stepped up last you night. He was huge. Yeah. He was huge in their win last night against Toronto because of his defensive prowess and because he actually made a three and the opposing team had to honor him. So uh, maybe that's going to cause him to get some more minutes going forward. Um, because that kind of intensity in the defensive uh, stuff has been slipping for the Cavs since the beginning of the year, basically. So you talked about how their roster has changed this year, but let's just say that the Cavs don't win Game 7 in Oakland. How do you think that their roster would be different this year if that actually happened? Oh, I think there would have been significant changes, and and I think the one that you would point to, the obvious one, would have been Kevin Love. Um, The Cavs had conversations about Kevin Love at the trade deadline last year. They were having conversations about um, whether he fit in a seven-game series against the Golden State Warriors. Those were the internal conversations that the Cavs were having. And Golden State was having internal conversations about how they felt they could exploit Kevin's deficiencies defensively and they could exploit Kyrie's deficiencies defensively too. And and maybe they would have in that seven-game series if Draymond doesn't get suspended for Game 5. Who knows? or Andre Liggins is not dealing, or uh, Andre Iguodala is not dealing with an achy back for the final couple of games, or if Andrew Bogut doesn't go down for the rest of the series, or if Steph Curry is 100%, who knows what would have been different. But there were internal discussions, both in Cleveland and in Golden State, about how Kevin Love even fit on the court, and if there was a place for him 
in a series against the Warriors. Now, he stepped up and he delivered in big moments, um, but if they don't win Game 7, if they don't rally from 3-1 down, um, I don't know if the Cavs would have found a trade partner. I don't know if they would have found the pieces that they would want coming back in a trade, but but they definitely would have had more conversations about whether they would have been better off without Kevin and if they would have taken some lesser pieces to cover two holes um, in a trade for, for Kevin. But but now that they won Game 7 and, and Kevin had a hand in them winning Game 7 and winning the series against the Warriors, he has an internal belief in himself that he belongs, and I think the Cavs have a belief that they probably would not be able to get um, in return for Kevin something that would help them win a championship. Right. I think love was kind of the obvious scapegoat uh, all along. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to kind of think about what would have happened had they lost. But he seems comfortable. He, he finally seems, you know, fully, fully comfortable. And, and I think that that first materialized, you know, during those first few rounds of the mm. playoffs last year when they were running through Detroit. Uh, and then was, was it Atlanta they ran through in the second round? Yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Love was huge during both of those series. Obviously, his numbers kind of cooled off at the end of the Toronto series and certainly in the finals. Uh, but he's playing his best, you know, by far in a Cleveland uniform right now through the first month plus of the season. Was there a certain point, you know, over the last calendar year or so when you really did start noticing things changing, you know, in favor of Kevin Love, either on or off the court? Yes. And I wrote about it for Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer last year. Because Kevin said it, and then I asked Ty Lu about it privately. So Kevin was asked about being more aggressive, and it all happened. The Cavs had a loss in March against the Brooklyn Nets, one of those baffling losses that they had in the regular season. And then after that, they all got together. They canceled what they had planned. And instead of going through what they had planned, Ty Lu had a conversation with, with everybody on the team, they got together at Trump Soho, and they had a meeting, and Ty basically said to Kevin, look, you're a bad mf or two. You need to demand the ball. You're a member of the big three. You're an all-star. We need you to be that. And at the same time that he did that, Ty said the same thing to LeBron. He said the same thing to Kyrie, and he said it for everybody on the team to hear, basically saying, we need this guy. Forget all the noise about him. Forget about whether he fits or whether he doesn't fit. We know he fits. We need him to be great. You guys have to get him the ball. And Kevin, you have to demand the ball. Yes, you're playing with Kyrie. Yes, you're playing with LeBron. But you can't take a back seat. And Ty's quote was, you're a bad MF or two. Demand the ball from them. And from that point on, Kevin was a different kind of guy. He was more aggressive. He was more comfortable, and I think that was Ty's way of instilling confidence in Kevin. And Kevin has been playing with that confidence ever since, and it's carried over into this season. I mean, the Cavs, when the big three each has 20 points, the Cavs are 13-2, and two, uh, including 4-1 and one this season. When they each reach 80, they're 9-0 and oh this season. So when they're all clicking together at the same time and they can feed off each other, uh, the Cavs are going to be at their best. And, and I think what it is with Kevin is that when, when he was going through this whole process, coming over from Minnesota, like he said he knew what it was all about, and he said that he knew what he was going to have to sacrifice, but I don't think anybody truly knows until you actually go through it. Like, Chris Bosh can tell Kevin Love what to expect, 
And people around Kevin can tell him what to expect. But when you're actually going through it, it's a lot different. And you have to feel it. And you have to go through it. You have to experience it in order to come out on the other side. And I think there were honest moments where Kevin doubted himself. And I think there were moments when the Cavs doubted that Kevin was actually the right person to complete the big three. Now that they went through it together and they won a championship together, I don't think Kevin doubts himself anymore. I think it's, you know, bleep what everybody said about me. Bleep all the trade rumors. I showed last year during the playoffs and during the NBA Finals that I do belong in this big three, that I am the right piece, that I can fit, and that we can make all three of our unique skills come together and churn out something great. And since that point, there's just a new comfort that he's walking around with. There's a new belief. It's like a weight has been lifted off him, and he just doesn't care about anything anymore because he's been validated. Man, Nick, we're going to have a hard time naming this podcast. So many good options. Bad MF or two, Cleveland Mavaliers, <laughs> lots of different ways we could go with this. We're going Mavaliers. Mavaliers, probably. Uh, last question here, Chris, before we move into our rapid fire section. Uh, you talked about a couple weaknesses the Cavs roster has right now, but obviously given salary restraints, uh, Cleveland is still somewhat limited in, in terms of potential roster moves. But is there a position at which you think they really need to improve on before the tra- trade deadline? Yeah, I think it's backup point guard. I think it is. They just they just don't have anything to go to for that second unit aside from ISOs with LeBron if he's running the second unit or whatever it is that LeBron does on the second unit, getting everybody involved. They just put a lot on him and they ask a lot of him when it comes to that second unit because they don't have a backup point guard that they trust, that they believe in. They don't have somebody like Matthew Delvadova. Look, Delhi was huge in the sense of what he meant to the Cavs when Kyrie was coming back from injury. And he was huge in the sense of the progress that he made in just running a team. And now when it comes to that second unit, it's all ISO. It's, okay, Kevin's going to be running with the second unit, or LeBron's going to be running with the second unit, or Kyrie's going to be running with the second unit, because the second unit just doesn't have creators, and they don't have guys that can run the offense. Liggins can't do it. Iman Shumpert has tried, and it doesn't look pretty all the time. Um, Jordan McRae can't do it. Uh, Richard Jefferson at this stage can't do it. And Mike Dunleavy has not given the Cavs anything of what they expected when they traded for him this offseason. So, so I think it's that backup point guard replacing Matthew Dellavedova. And if it's not him, guys, it's, it's finding another guy to replace Timofey Mozgov. Because the truth is, this offseason, the Cavs lost two pieces, two key pieces from their rotation that won the NBA championship. Whether you think those guys mattered or not in the NBA Finals, they helped the Cavs get to that point. So they lose two key pieces, and they don't replace them. Or they tried to replace them, and the guys that they replaced them with are not part of the rotation or haven't shown that they belong in the rotation. So it's either backup point guard or it's rim protector. Um, If J.R. Smith's injury turns out to be significant, and who knows what's going to happen with that because he's having an MRI on that, and that's really what's going to reveal what's wrong with a knee. Like, x-rays are going to come back negative, but it's a knee. So you don't see anything about the ligaments when you take an x-ray. You have to learn that stuff with an MRI. So if JR goes down, maybe they look for another wing because they're not getting out of Dunleavy what they expected. But to me, it's backup point guard. It's been backup point guard. And the name Mario Chalmers continues to be one that is coming up in conversations constantly within the organization. Huh. 
Well, that's interesting because obviously with Chalmers, you know, recovering from an injury and being a free agent, you wouldn't necessarily right. have to work a trade. Uh, I mean, you still have to clear a roster spot, I guess. And and what's interesting with these type of championship teams to me is, and we saw the same thing with LeBron's Heat, is you know these guys get so close, and you know all of a sudden you you kind of have to save a roster spot for James Jones and Birdman yeah. and Mike Miller, and like you, you kind of decide between like the novelty and the the off court value of those guys you know, versus the on-court value of, of someone like a Chalmers. Right, and I would say this, um, based on being around the team the last couple of years, James Jones is one of the most important people in that organization. And again, he doesn't bring a ton on the court, and, and I recognize that. But behind the scenes, he has meant so much for Kevin Love. He has meant so much for Kyrie Irving. He has meant so much for all the younger guys, the puzzle that they put together, the idea that they had this puzzle shaped in the Larry O'Brien trophy last year throughout the postseason run, and each player got to put a piece in, and there were 16 pieces, and that represented how many wins they needed to win the championship, and the final piece was shaped in the state of Ohio, and Ty Lue and the coaches got to put that final piece in. James Jones came up with that idea. He got that from Miami. He brought that with him from Miami. Um, so, see, he is valuable. They call him champ for a reason. Um, he is one of the most important voices behind the scenes in that locker room. So it's tough to say that he doesn't have value, but, but you're right in the sense that you do have to balance those kinds of things. And look, if you're not getting from your bench what you want to get and, and you do feel like there are some holes that you have to plug, um, it, it is hard to justify those kinds of players. Not James in particular because he's that important. But those kinds of players on the roster, I'd agree with that. The other thing that the Cavs are running into, the problem that they'd run into, guys, is that they don't have a lot of pieces that they'd be willing to trade. So the tradable assets that they have, like all the draft picks and stuff like that, it's going to be very, very difficult. There are rules against that for them, especially given some trades that they've already made in the past. So they have a couple of trade exceptions. If they can find a team that's looking to dump salary, they can do that. And, and they have floated Jordan McRae since basically this summer that he would be available. They, they tried showcasing him at times. They've spoken very highly of him at times, I think in part, to raise his trade value. Um, he's a young, athletic player. Um, maybe some team would be interested in him, but, but their chances of pulling off a trade come down to a veteran on another team that thought they were going to be good that isn't good and they're willing to just dump salary basically for for not a lot in return that would be the Cavs best chance well we'll keep our eye on that situation certainly some interesting stuff there Chris uh let's go ahead and move into the rapid fire section of this podcast and we'll kick it off with what is your or who is your favorite Cavaliers player of all time oh Mark Price I remember when when I was growing up and this was before I was on the beat I remember when I was growing up, I'd just sit there and I'd watch the three-point contest over and over and over again with him in there. And then I'd go out in my backyard and I'd try and emulate Mark Price. So <laughs> I, I wore his number in grade school when I was growing up. I had his jersey. I had his trading card. I tried to emulate Mark Price as much as I could. I thought you were going to say tractor trailer there, uh, but Mark, Mark Price is a, is a pretty decent answer. I suppose. As somebody who was four foot ten, ninety five pounds going into high school, probably would have been tough for me to get to tractors level. Okay, okay, fair enough. Uh, most underrated team in the NBA right now? Ooh, that's a really good one. Um, so I think it's always hard to define underrated because, like, you'll come up with a team, right? 
Right. And then somebody will say that, no, I've been talking about them for years or something along those <laughs> lines. Um, so, so I guess I would say the Charlotte Hornets because I feel like every time we talk about the Eastern Conference, it's about the Raptors, Celtics, Bulls, and maybe even the Hawks because of moves that they made this yep. offseason and because of what they did last year. And nobody is talking about the Charlotte Hornets. So I'll say them. All right, let's keep it in the same vein here. Most overrated team in the NBA. Oh, goodness. I would say um, the Minnesota Timberwolves, just from the standpoint of everybody was expecting them to take the leap this year, and they were kind of the sexy pick to be that eighth seed in the Western Conference or seventh seed in the Western Conference, and they still seem like a team that is so far away to me. Yeah, I mean they were better this time last year through twenty games. Yeah, they, are. they were eight and twelve through twenty games last year. Now they're six and fourteen. I'm with so you is on it that. fair to say a team that was so bad last year is overrated? I, I think. I so. think it is. I think in the context it is. I mean, I think there are people out there that thought they were going to be a hell of a lot better than the eight seed in right. the West, even. All right, uh, so the Cavs are bringing back the orange throwbacks this weekend, if I'm not mistaken. I believe they're yep. actually playing the Hornets for that game. You know you're not um, mistaken. No, I'm not mistaken. I, <laughs> I, I, I've looked at this stuff. I think the, the NBA announces which teams are wearing throwbacks you know, months in advance, and I'm, I'm a, big, a big uniform guy. What is your favorite Cavaliers uniform? I feel like they've had so many. You can go back all the way to the days of you know, pre-Mark Price if you want. Yeah, so I feel like this is cheating. But a lot of it ties into what happened in the uniform. Sure. And I think the all blacks. Yeah. Just because of the story of the all black sleeves. If you remember the first time they wore them last year, LeBron ripped the sleeves. Right. He was so angry about how he was playing (laughs) that he ripped his sleeves mid-game. And there was a huge conversation in the locker room after the game about how they're not basketball jerseys how there's um, too much restriction to them and how the NBA has to start caring about how players feel as opposed to how things look. And then all of a sudden they decide to customize their black sleeve jerseys for the NBA finals. They come out in all black and they win three straight games, rally from three, one down and LeBron channels the undertaker and all of that black and the funeral and all the stuff that goes into it. So I think the all black plus I really like that C it's kind of become like, the logo of Cleveland is just that big C. Yeah, I was going to ask you specifically about those black uniforms because I thought the same thing. You know, LeBron was so, at least it looked like, so against them. And all of a sudden oh. they, they start wearing them in the playoffs. But you could tell, like like you said, they did, at least LeBron kind of altered his. Like his sleeves were almost like, it was almost like a women's cut shirt, you know? Like the, the, <laughs> the sleeves were were so much larger. It was kind of a maybe like a yes. Sam Bradford type of effect. <laughs> yeah, the whole team did that. The whole team yeah. did that. They yeah. talked to the equipment manager. He goes by the nickname Cobra. And they talked <laughs> sure. to him, and they, they had like a try-on session, right? Yeah. So like they all tried him on, and they all like showed him what alterations needed to huh. be made for them to be comfortable in those jerseys before they wore them in the NBA Finals because if they didn't do that, they weren't going to wear those in game you five. You think it would just NBA be easier, finals. like, hey, let's just go with the navy or the yellow or, or the white or the <laughs> nope. red. They wanted the look. They wanted right. the intimidating black look for one reason or another. I can tell huh. you which uniform is my least favorite. It's the one where it looks like you just take a jersey, you hang it on your wall, and you splotch paint on it. The paint stripe Cavs uniform from the past with the light blue, those were horrendous. They didn't make well, any Are we sense talking like the, like the Dewan Wagner edition? Yes. Oh, yes. those those were great. What are you talking no. about? No, I, 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 I actually I actually have, have a Kyrie one, yeah. version of that. Yeah, I love those. 
with the paint stripe right in the center of it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, I think no. I will give you this. At the time, I remember thinking, "Wow, those are terrible." And you know, I was pretty young <laughs> back then. But like, those are ones that have gotten cooler with age. I think you can say a lot. There's a lot of jerseys like that. Like like the Bucks jerseys when they had the deer on the front, or even the oh. Raptors when they had the dinosaur. Like people thought those were cheesy at the time, but you know, fast forward 15 years, and now those are those are awesome. Man, that was like the Dewan Wagner, Bobby yep. Phils, Chris Mills era. No, Oof. thank you. What an era. I think the over-under set for jokes that Nick and I are going to make about Cobra through the rest of the season <laughs> probably set at like 100 <laughs> to 100. That's actually the so, best part of this podcast. Yeah, so, now is the Cavs have an equipment manager named Cobra. Yeah, so thanks Nicknamed. for Nicknamed. Yeah, thanks for giving <laughs> I us that. Can't imagine, I can't imagine a little baby would come out and be like, you're going to be named Cobra for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get back into it here. Oh, Cobra, that's a good one. That's the name of the podcast now. So okay. many good options. If Westbrook averages a triple-double, what has to happen for him to not win the MVP? Oklahoma City misses the playoffs. That would be the only thing, because I think that's that's the one thing coming into the year that people were wondering. Okay, yeah, he's going to put up huge numbers, but MVP recently has come on a winning team, and it's usually one of the top two teams in either the East or the West. So if they miss the playoffs, I think there would have to be some kind of debate. I think that's really the only answer right now. Obviously, yep. as the season goes along, we'll continue to terse it out. But I think that's exactly the either the that answer. or he gets hurt, right? Yeah, God forbid. Um, so we, I should ask you this right away when we were talking about jerseys. But what is the best jersey in your closet, NBA or otherwise? So I have um, my favorite jersey. I have, and I'm probably the only person in Cleveland with this. I have a Sean Taylor, the former safety for the Miami Hurricanes, oh. who played for the Washington oh. Redskins. R.I.P. R.I.P. The late Sean Taylor. I like it. Good answer. Wait, you have a, is a Hurricanes jersey or a Redskins? I have the number 26 Hurricanes jersey. Ooh, wow. I, I bought it off some website. I don't even know what it was. <laughs> Name on it the might back have too. Been no, the name's oh. not on the back, so it might have been oh. a Clinton Portish jersey that that sure. kind of turned into. <laughs> well, that's the nice Taylor. thing about college jerseys; you can, yeah, you know, every few years you can just repurpose them. Right, but I know that it was designed to be a Sean Taylor right. jersey. He, and that's he all that is my, He's one of my favorite athletes of all time. I promise this question is not meant to be a low blow, but will the oh. Browns get a win this season? I hope not. Are you kidding me? Like, you've gone this far. If they got one win and lost the first overall pick because they won one game and San Francisco doesn't win another one, that would be that would be so crushing. That would be so Cleveland Browns. And that would make the season. Wait, so at what point at what point did it switch? Like was it like week nine? You're like, all right. Oh god, no. Oh no, week one. Week one. I was I was an 0 and sixteen season? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. I don't think that's the question. All right. So, like, uh, in the past, I had play like a turd for Robert Griffin III. I had wet the Betty for Teddy, suck for luck. Like, all those campaigns for the Browns to be bad. And, like, my slogan this year was darkness before Deshaun. And I felt oh, like wow. that fit because it could yeah. be either guy, right? It could be Deshaun Watson or Deshaun Kaiser. Yep. So um, I was on board with that probably in the offseason, actually. All right, that's that's Spoken fair. like a true Cleveland fan. Yeah, no, I, I it's all admire. about is isn't a great fan supposed to want what's best for their favorite team? I just, but there's a difference between going one and fifteen and oh, like oh and sixteen carries its own like it's like another tier. Yeah, you know. Yeah, there's but, a stigma attached to that. But the nice okay. thing is the Browns haven't been doing this like the Lions, like in 08 or whatever year that was for the Lions. It was yeah. 
comical every single week. Like the image of Dan Orvlosky running out of the back of the end zone, like defines that whole season. Like the Browns have at least been really respectable, like 12 out of, you know, pretty much every week, I should say through this point. And they've had, they've had, they actually have like fun skill position players. Uh, And I'm not, I'm not just pandering. No, I'm with you. And that's the thing that I've been trying to tell fans. It's not going over well because they had to try and endure all the jokes and all the pointing and laughing and all that kind of stuff. But, but you're right. Like, for this team, it's essentially an expansion team. Mm-hmm. So you have to find progress and you have to find positives in other ways. Like wins and losses, that's a measure of your team against the other team. So tell me, if looking at the schedule, which team the Browns were better than and should have been able to beat based on the talent that they have compared to the talent on the other team, there's there's not another team. So you find little things throughout the course of the season and you hope for progress. And I would say that the Browns have made progress. It hasn't shown up in the win-loss column, which is great, but they have made progress. Yeah, they're lucky they avoided the Jaguars. Maybe we can set up like a, a little like week 18 scrimmage between those two. Um, this is like the most successful season since 1999 because <laughs> they're going to have a chance at the first overall pick. All right, that's all fair. That's all fair. Uh, so I read that you have, I believe the exact word you used was an armoire of bobbleheads. Uh, wh- <laughs> what are some of the highlights here? Where do you find this stuff? It was. Uh, I want to say it was on your like your bio page for cleveland.com. I didn't dig too deep. <laughs> that's probably right. It probably was. I'm an open book. Um, <laughs> so what was the question? I'm sorry. <laughs> so I said I read that you have, and again, this is the exact word that I believe was used in, in the, the article that I read. An yes. armoire of bobbleheads. Uh, so what are what are some of the highlights in this armoire? Oh my gosh, it's basically Tiger Woods, Kobe Bryant, uh, LeBron James, Sean Taylor, uh, those kinds of guys. So okay. um, in there, I have numerous bobbleheads of Tiger Woods. Uh, I think I have the whole collection of Tiger, including one where he's wearing like a straw hat <laughs> and the orange and white polo shirt from winning the U.S. Amateur. So I have that bobblehead, believe it or not. Um, And another one is also in there, kind of hanging off the back. I've got one of those Sean Taylor 21 towels that they handed out. And a lot of people put um, at at his gravesite. I was able to get one of those off eBay. So that's that's a big deal. And then I have an autographed Tiger Woods flag from his PGA Championship win that I paid way too much money for. But I was in an auction, and it just it turned into a machismo thing. I knew who was bidding against me. He knew I was bidding against him. <laughs> and I just, at the, at the point is, I just didn't want to lose. I was like, you know what, dude, you are not getting this. I am way over budget right now, but I'm just not letting you have this thing. So I ended up winning it at an auction for way too much. And, and eBay is forever, yeah. forever grateful <laughs> as, there. As someone who's <laughs> spent way too much money on a Sharif Abdurrahim jersey, I, I feel your pain there. That's great. So which one is it Vancouver. from Abdur Rahim? Oh, okay. There you go. Yep. Yep. The teal. Uh, all right. Let's bring it back to the Cavaliers. Who's your favorite player uh, that you've interacted with, you talk with on a daily basis? We've heard some pretty good stories here that we really, weren't really even expecting. Enlightening about James Jones, but personally yep. for you, who's your favorite player just to talk with? No, I think it's James Jones. It's James Jones or LeBron. And, and LeBron, because he's so open and he talks basically every day, and James is... I learn something new every single time I talk to him, and, and we just talk random stuff a lot of the times, and then it morphs into other conversations. 
but I feel like I'm a better writer and I'm a better basketball mind just because I've been able to pick his brain before and after games. He's so, so smart. Like if he, if he doesn't go into broadcasting after his career or coaching, I feel like he's missing an opportunity to share his knowledge. Uh, so I don't like following too many athletes on social media. I'm sure you, you know how that usually goes. Not a lot of substance there most mm-hmm. of the time, but Richard Jefferson uh, and Channing Frye have, were, were an exception for me. And I was, again, hesitant to kind of jump on the, the Richard Jefferson Snapchat uh, bandwagon, but it was hilarious throughout the playoffs and it's, it's carried over to this season. Like, How real is that, is that Frye-Jefferson bromance uh, oh. that's played out over Snapchat for the last six months? So one thing I always look at, I always look at where lockers are set up because I don't think it's a mistake. I think um, it's a calculated effort by the team for whatever reason. Like when LeBron first came to Cleveland, his locker was directly next to Dion Waiters because they were trying to get something out of Dion because they thought they had something in him and they thought LeBron could be the one to pull the best out of him. It didn't work and then they traded him. And I think a big reason that they traded him is because, you know, they could never get Dion on the same page and get him into a winning mind frame. But but LeBron's locker was right next to Dion, and that wasn't a mistake. Kyrie's right in between J.R. Smith and Iman Shumpert, guys that he interacts with all the time. Not a mistake. When Kendrick Perkins was here, and he was supposed to be that sage veteran in the locker room, he was right in between Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson, guys who had no playoff experience at all. So um, he wanted... Uh, the Cavs wanted Kendrick Perkins to, to instill some of that knowledge in those guys. And, and now Richard Jefferson is is right by Channing Fry. They're right across from each other. So that bromance has been there for a long, long time. They grew up together. Um, they've stayed close throughout their time in the NBA. So that bromance is, is real. Uh, th- there are certain, I guess, clicks in the locker room, like everybody's close. That's one of the great things about the Cavs. They go out, they hang out together, they go to Indians games, they go to Kanye West concerts, they go to Ohio State, Michigan, um, but, but they are all very, very close. But within that closeness is clicks. LeBron and J.R. Smith, LeBron and James Jones and J.R. Smith, Kyrie, Iman Shumpert, Jordan McRae, Kevin Love, and I guess James Jones. Kevin's kind of isolated. That's just how he is. But Channing Frye and Richard Jefferson, one of the strongest bromances in that locker room. I'd put it right up there with the new trio of Kyrie, Amon, and Jordan McRae. <laughs> Nick and I have debated this question at multiple points over the last couple of years. We'd love for you to come in and give us a new take on it. Can you please rank these three point guards? Kemba Uh-oh. Walker... Kyrie Irving and John Wall. Okay, this is um, on the record. Yeah, I know this is on record and it's so weird because Kyrie is a loyal defines, listener of the podcast. Everyone defines what they think a point guard is differently. Yeah. Um. So some people have a true point guard definition. Other people just understand that the game has changed so much that the idea of the quote unquote true point guard has kind of gone away. Uh. So for me personally. I'll go Kyrie 1, Kemba 2, and John Wall 3. And the only reason I say that about John Wall is that he's had opportunities um, to lead his team to the postseason, and I don't think it happens enough or as much as it should. I'll put it that way. And I don't think he's developed enough offensive game outside of driving 
all the way to the basket um, to be in the category of Kyrie and Kemba. I still think Wall is the easiest of the three to guard. That's a, a really fair point and a good breakdown there. So what okay. do you guys have? Oh, ah, I think I might. I would go Wall one, Kyrie two, Oof. Kemba three. Yeah, I'd, I'd go Wall, Walker, Irving, and and for me back at, when we started this discussion, it was when when Irving was alone in Cleveland, and I was kind of making the same arguments maybe that you did for Wall is that Irving yeah. was not taking that team to a chance or to the playoffs, and it didn't seem like he would ever do that. Right. I mean, it's a wash. I think if you put Wall or you put Kemba on the Cavaliers, they're probably just as successful. Um, you know, and and I think if you put if you kind of scramble them in any order, and I think get pretty similar results. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. The only difference there is that Kyrie has the kind of clutch gene, the killer mentality yeah. that that LeBron has at at times in his career lacked. So if you notice, when it's the fourth quarter, it's a close game. A lot of people are looking for Kyrie because he's a killer, and they want him to be the closer. They want him to be Mr. Fourth Quarter, the guy to take that last shot. LeBron mm-hmm. had that with Wade and Ray Allen and even Bosh at times in Miami. He never had that his first time in Cleveland. Like He was dishing to Daniel Marshall and Mo Williams at time, and they didn't come through. And I think LeBron, the style of play that he has and wanting to get everybody involved and the attention that he creates – and wanting to make the right basketball play, no matter the criticism that could come his way, I think he needs somebody like mm-hmm. Kyrie to be willing to be the closer. And I think Kyrie has uh, benefited greatly from that, and I think LeBron has benefited greatly from having a killer like Kyrie. No, that's fair. And Kyrie, at least you know historically, um, is the best catch and shoot three point guy out of those two. And and I think yeah. I think that's that's huge for for a team. You know, when LeBron obviously is, is still struggling to shoot the three. Uh, speaking of that, last rapid fire question: that this rapid fire round has basically turned into like. I don't know what the opposite of rapid is, but it's a slow fire round. Um, you can blame me. I talk a no, lot. That's no, okay. no, I feel bad that we're taking up your time, but if you're, if you're no, happy okay. to talk, we're happy to keep going. Um, but this roster has three former three-point shootout winners. Love, Kyrie, and James Jones have all won it. How on earth has J.R. Smith never even participated in this thing? Oh, J.R. was asked that question last year. Actually, I think Chris Haynes at the time asked him. And JR thinks it's because of his image, and it's not the kind of person <laughs> it's not the kind of person that the NBA would want on that stage for All Star Saturday night. That's that's what JR thinks. He so, thinks his image. So he's never even yeah, he's never been asked. Right. He's never been asked. He doesn't seem like somebody who would turn it down. No, God no. He <laughs> would do that. I mean, that would go again, everybody has individual goals to right. go along with the team goal. I, I think at the top of individual J.R. Smith goal list is winning the three-point contest, <laughs> beating Steph Curry, beating Klay Thompson, beating all those oh, people man. who have been known as great three-point shooters, and J.R. kind of pushed to the side because of his bad boy reputation, because of his reputation for being a knucklehead, because of his colorful personality, his flagrant fouls, all of that kind of stuff, um, he thinks, is why he has not been in the three-point huh. shootout. I mean, this is a competition that has had... What, Quentin Richardson. Um, I'm trying to look at the, right. the list of names throughout the years that have that have been allowed in. Gilbert Arenas was in this thing. Vladimir yep. Redmanovich, Antoine Walker, and they can't let Jr. Smith in. Well, maybe this like if is Jr. won that thing, he'd probably walk around without a shirt for two weeks. As opposed I, I to one would, week, I hope he would do the contest without a shirt. <laughs> he might. 
You never know. It's JR. Like when it comes to JR Smith, like somebody could ask me a JR question, and my response always has to be because he's so unpredictable. He really is. He's unpredictable. <laughs> Um, and, and that's part of the allure of him, and that's mm-hmm. that's carried over to his on-court personality and how he plays the game as well. But somebody could ask me a JR question, and I'd respond with, it's JR, so I would say, yes, anything's possible. <laughs> that's totally accurate. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. You can read Chris's work on cleveland.com. Listen to him at 92.3, the fan in Cleveland. Uh, do you have anything, anything upcoming, writing or otherwise, that you want to plug before we let you go? No, I think we hit on everything, guys. All right. Well, thanks again for taking the time to join us, man. You got it, guys. Anytime. Ace is a place with the helpful hardware, folks. At Ace, your backyard's right in our backyard, which means we have hand-picked products that are right for the birds in your neighborhood, like premium bird seed, suet, birdhouses, and feeders. Stop by your local Ace and get everything you need to attract the birds you want, including Ace Wild Bird Food, on sale now. Now through Tuesday only, when you buy two 20-pound bags of wild bird food, get a third bag free, only at Ace, the helpful place. Offer valid through February 28th at participating stores.